welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. I think today's episode is going to be a bit of a ramble, if that's okay with everyone. Usually, I write notes before I do the program. Sometimes I do almost a script, but today I don't really think I want to do that. I'm actually recording on a Friday for Saturday and probably will be recording into Saturday as thoughts occur to me and hopefully coalesce. YouTube, among its many things that are filmed by professionals and non-professionals, often has these uh, clips of time frames, sometimes as early as the late 1800s, but mostly the early 1900s through right now. But the ones I like are the very early ones. So it'll say what New York looked like in 1901 or Los Angeles at the turn of the century or something like that. And many often are colorized, which to me, I actually like because you actually see the details surrounding the footage. But what always happens when I look at these and part of the I don't want to say it's morbid fascination, but it's a recognition, a recognition fascination, if you will, is you're looking at these films and all of these people with their suits and their beautiful clothes, because in those days people actually dressed up to go out, and the horse-drawn carriages, the occasional Model T or some such thing. And at the time these things were filmed, many of them, the camera was still a new thing so a lot of people sort of kind of walk up towards the camera and then fascinated walk away from the camera and there might even be the odd child and a dog running in the street and it looks very much like anything you might see today obviously except for the clothing but they're young they're old the middle age they're living their lives they're buying things they're running around seeing others that they know and love. And the thing that most appears in my mind is that not one of these people, not even the youngest baby, is alive right now. And I'm betting that many of them, probably the youngest among them, thought they were basically always going to be doing this. There's another similar type film, but later, around... I guess the 1940s, 50s, 60s, a variety of them. There's an area in the area I live in, Los Angeles, which is called Sunset Plaza. And the buildings there really haven't changed at all since the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And very often people would do these drives down that street. Uh, it's probably between about... Doheny and La Cienega on sunset and there'll be the same type of camera thing and you'll see a person walking across the street sometimes looking at the camera a man going obviously to his job a person strolling along the street and now this is a street that I have actually walked that I walk frequently I go to restaurants on that street and those people, probably most of them, are long gone. And yet the street 
The buildings, the architecture, the topography looks exactly the same. When those films were taken, those people who were being photographed thought, this is my life. This is how it's always going to be. And I think it was highly unlikely that they were thinking about time passing. But we are, as we're watching these, seeing their time passing. These films that I watched came to mind to me last night as I was sitting at a little cafe called the WeHo Bistro on the corner of Holloway and La Cienega, which I had not been to since the COVID-19 epidemic came upon us. I had a craving for their mushroom soup and I was in the mood for something different for dinner. So I went there to get takeout and it was happily kind of like normal. They've really done a wonderful job of distancing. They expanded it. They expanded the outside and they expanded the inside a little bit in terms of how they set up the tables. And it was almost like normal. It was just like almost a normal dinner on a Thursday night. As I waited for my food, which I was going to take home, I sat on the outside in a corner where there was absolutely no one. And I was watching in live action the kind of thing I see on YouTube about the past. I was watching the cars speed through the red light uh, going up La Cienega. I noticed the flames of the heat lamps that were keeping the patio warm, the flames darting out and caressing the patio. I noticed the homeless guy going across the street with his piled up cart. There were lots of people walking their dogs and pretty much every dog that was being walked was wearing a little couture coat. At that moment, I actually didn't have my phone with me, so I didn't have the ability to film because I thought this would be a perfect thing to be putting on YouTube. And now maybe, you know, a hundred years later, whatever the incarnation of the internet is, somebody is going to watch this and they're going to say to themselves the same thing I say when I watch these things is that all the people that are passing here are gone. Just plain, ordinary moments in life. Hardly worth thinking about, but oddly enough, every one of them momentous. And there comes a time when there will be for each of us, as is true for me, given my age and the fact that most of my life is behind me, not in front of me, no more such moments. What is so telling about watching those moments and watching a moment in my own life as I was waiting for my dinner is how when things are ordinary in our lives, when we're going about our business, when we're healthy, how we have volition, we have the ability to choose what we're doing, to walk here, to go there, to see that person, to have that job. I had all the time in the world, it seemed, to choose to be free to choose the kind of life I was going to live, good, bad, or indifferent. I'm not sure this is going to make sense, but we, I, had the luxury to determine, at least in this part of the world, who and what I was going to be and what I was going to value. Again, I'm not sure I'm making sense, but it's like when you're living your ordinary life with all of its struggles, with all of its joys, you've got wiggle room 
to determine its meaning or lack thereof. And you really better decide, I know this is going to sound crazy, but you better decide now whether or not and how it has meaning because there will come a time when you won't be able to do that for a variety of reasons and it'll be too late to make the decision and you might not like the decision you're making or have made when push comes to shove. And some decisions, while they will not have been easy, will provide ultimate sense of comfort, if you will, not a panacea because there is no obvious panacea in life, but a comfort in terms of what may or may not be my ultimate end, your ultimate end, particularly when things look bleak, like for the atheist in a foxhole. I want to read a portion of chapter 21 from John's Gospel to give you something in context that you've heard, I've heard, over the years, a little segment that people quote related to how our lives end up. But here, Jesus is speaking very specifically of Peter, apparently. But, in a way, I think he's speaking of all of us. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we also will come with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When it was already dawn, Jesus was standing on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you caught anything to eat? They answered him, No. So he said to them, Cast the net over the right side of the boat, and you will find something. So they cast it, and were not able to pull it in because of the number of fish. So the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tucked in his garment, for he was lightly clad, and jumped into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, for they were not far from shore, only about a hundred yards, dragging the net with the fish. When they climbed out on shore, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you just caught. So Simon Peter went over and dragged the net ashore full of 153 large fish. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they realized it was the Lord. Jesus came over and took the bread and gave it to them, and in like manner the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to his disciples after being raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He then said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that he had said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Amen, amen, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
He said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had said this, he said to him, Follow me. If there had been a camera around in them their days on the Sea of Galilee, would somebody from a distance be filming Jesus and the apostles and noting the ordinary life and how nothing seemed to be particularly urgent? A bunch of fishermen, their friend Jesus cooking fish on a fire for them. But Jesus was trying to get them to get Peter to decide something during this normal life, that is, to follow him. And he was telling them, Peter in particular, you and me in particular, when you look at it, that there would come a time when this great normal life, this way of being that we take for granted would stop, and that there would come a time when we would be all led to places we don't want to go. I bet you're asking, is she ever going to bring it back to today and what's going on and what she's thinking about? Yes, I am. I've been blessed that though I've had uh, medical issues in my life, they've all been outpatient, and I've never actually had to spend any time in a hospital, more than a few hours in an emergency room or perhaps in a recovery room after I had my stent done. But over the years, I have spent a lot of time with others in a hospital, beginning probably with my father back when I lived in New York because he always seemed to be having medical issues even when he was young, though he lived to the ripe old age of 90. I should say even before that, I was in hospitals because my mother died in a hospital. Back then, even though these events may have been traumatic, I don't think I registered them as I do now, many, many years later, some 40 plus years later. And the one thing that always occurs to me as I watch people being carted from room to room, test to test, when people come in and out of rooms, the staff, who are lovely in many ways, but are pro forma. They come in, they do a couple of tests, they walk out. There are many of them. It's hard to recognize them, particularly now because everyone's wearing a mask. Can you imagine what it is like for a person who's sick and already confused because of their sickness to have people with masks coming in and out of their rooms and talking to them and they're not really getting a sense of what's happening and just being moved to another test. You're going to have another test. We're going to take some blood. We're going to take this. We're going to take that. And they also make the patient wear a mask for many of these things. Now you say, well, that makes sense. We've got to protect the people from getting sick. But imagine the person lying in the bed who has no understanding of what's going on around him or her because she or he is sick. It's kind of like being a prisoner, though for your own good when you're in a hospital. I've noticed whenever I've been with someone in a hospital that whenever a patient asks for something, they're always promised that they're going to get it, but it never comes quickly. It's always very slow. Yes, if you have an advocate, you can get things a little bit faster perhaps, but mostly, particularly during this pandemic, these patients are alone most of the time because visitation is so, so restricted. They're at the mercy, hopefully the good mercy, of the people who are taking care of them. And I can say I've met wonderful, up to this very day, I've met wonderful, wonderful doctors and nurses, people that are just meant to do this kind of work. But the system is terrible. It's, it, it kind of makes the sick person an object rather than 
someone to be nurtured. I can tell you that in the 40 years since I've seen people in the hospital, it's always been that way. I don't know if technology makes it better or worse, but it remains that way. I remember when my father was dying in the ICU uh, of sepsis, for which I have always had a very sore spot because of the doctors who basically never listened to him or to me when we were trying to tell them things. I remember he was attached to all sorts of wires and stuff uh, to try to keep him breathing and all of that. And I did have the image at time, I had forgotten this, of crucifixion. And his body was somewhat in the shape of the cross, if my memory serves, or maybe I'm being dramatic, I can't remember. There comes a time in our lives when physically we are no longer able to do all those ordinary things you see in those YouTube videos or when I'm sitting at a little restaurant waiting for my takeout food. What we believed through our lives and up to the time when we were actually cognizant of the problem of meaning, which we're not going to be in situations like being hospitalized, those attitudes, those beliefs become critical at these moments. In a way, one hopes that the idea that life is meaningful but only with God becomes most critical at a time when you no longer can reflect upon it. As I've seen more and more of people being hospitalized in my life, I realize that if I don't just drop dead, that this is going to be me. I'm going to be doing exactly this in a hospital, being pulled and prodded and talked down to. And if this is all happening, and I believe that life I have believed that life is meaningless. How woeful is that to go through this in that kind of condition, in that kind of state, that kind of mental state? But if you're going through it, having determined that you will be following him, even if you're not aware of it at the time, then it sort of creates an axiomatic meaning. You will have prepared yourself for this period of loss, this great suffering, but you will have already known, even if you don't remember at the moment that you're suffering, that it is not for naught. I've seen this. For people to whom life is not meaningless because there is God, even at their worst, the first thing they think about is having someone from a clergy there, in the case of a Catholic, to receive communion to be anointed. I love the image of Jesus cooking fish on the shore, waiting for his friends to come and have breakfast. That's kind of how I see heaven, actually, that Jesus is waiting for us to give us the fruit of eternal life. That's another one of those occasions when I was in Israel in 2018 that I got a full image of a place where the gospel occurred, and that was at the Church of Peter's Primacy, which is on the shores of the Galilee, where the risen Christ was waiting for them. Think of the joy they felt where they see him after they thought he was dead. I think this was the third time that, no, he's there. He's still there supporting us. When my father was unconscious and dying, he had priests around him and he had nuns around him. And he had me praying around him, 
Now, I know my dad, and he had always been very cynical about religion, but at the age of 85, he became a Catholic. Whether he believed as strongly that life had meaning through Christ, I can never say. He, he, uh, he would debate with you about everything, but the fact is he became a Catholic, and he had that anointing, that, that stuff around him that gave life meaning, at least for me, but it sort of cloaked him as well. I've seen people cry when they received anointing, not out of fear or anger, but out of a pure sense of relief and joy. I can't make somebody see that life is meaningless without God. Obviously, philosophers and theologians haven't been able to do that for millennia. And though I try to follow him, I understand the feeling of a lack of meaning in life because there's so much barreling on top of us. But remember what happened in that little gospel passage where the apostles see our Lord, at first don't recognize him as usual, and then they see him and they say, it is the Lord. And they get so excited. So they know they're going to be facing all this horrible stuff, but they see the Lord and they are all right. And all he says to them is, follow me. All of us are going down the road toward death. I have this uh, bizarre sort of very secular image of what happens in our lives. And I probably saw it somewhere. And it's of a people mover. And all of us are in a line throughout history on this people mover. And ultimately we get to the end of the people mover. And in my little dream, if you will, or call it a horror movie, we just go tilt over a cliff and into oblivion. That's how it would be viewed if you don't believe anything happens, if there's no meaning after that, or there's no meaning during life towards that. When you believe, you know that that drop is not the end, it's just the beginning toward something else, toward God. In a sense, we all follow our Lord because we are all going to die. But the Christian who follows Jesus is following him with a particular attitude. It's just not that I'm behind you, but I'm really behind you and I understand what you have done and what it means to follow you and what reward comes with truly following you. The reward is kind of a restoration of the original happiness in heaven, the original happiness in paradise. And far from being an easy delusion, a panacea, the hallucination of simple fools, it is very hard to trust. It's allowing yourself to fall into the arms of God. That is not easy. I think it's easier in some ways to say there's nothing and I'm just going to sleep. But to allow yourself to believe that you will be rescued, that you'll be grasped and lifted up, that is true bravery. Well, so saith this ordinary old Catholic me. And so, we end another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. If you enjoy the show, go to the podbean.com site and hit favorite. And let me know, if you want in the comments, subjects that you'd like to hear me chat about in my Ordinary Old Catholic Me way. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>